Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning, even even digitally like this. I know we're used to this by now, maybe, but um, thankful that we get to gather at least in small groups and and get to commune together with the Word and and uh, be able to worship and sing and, and just praise God together. And we'll continue to do that this morning, even though we're apart. So take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll finish up chapter 9 this week as we continue to make our way through this incredible book. <clears throat> Hebrews 9 chapter, excuse me, chapter 9 verse 23, we'll start there and go to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 9:23. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are incredibly glorious and kind to your people. We praise you, Lord, for your word, displaying your faithfulness and your goodness, displaying your holiness and your justice, as you are both just and the justifier of those who are in Christ. Lord, we celebrate your work this morning in your Son, our great high priest. Pray that through your word, your spirit would work to help us to see Jesus more clearly. Your spirit would give us soft hearts so that we might be impacted by your word that we might be changed and encouraged and strengthened to go tell the good news of our great high priest and we pray this in his name and for his sake amen well i want to start off, start off this morning with a question simple question but really important one and that's this do you need to be perfect to go to heaven do you actually have to be holy, righteous, good to spend eternity with God? I don't know if you've ever heard that question. It's one of my favorite questions to ask people, especially in evangelism situations, because I'm shocked how many answers I actually get for that question. Most people answer it really quickly and say, no, of course not. You don't have to be holy to go to heaven. That's ridiculous because we all know that we all make mistakes. And we're all sinners. That's in the Bible, right? We've all messed up. We have regrets. So that would mean nobody goes to heaven. And that's not cool. 
And then usually it's capped off with, but you know, God is love anyway. Right? He's gracious. He's kind. He understands us, especially because of Jesus. So no, you don't have to be perfect. Just forgiven. Right? Like the bumper sticker. It's not always the best thing if your theology fits on a bumper sticker or in a tweet. Um, but some people do believe that. Well, some people say, no, you don't have to be perfect to, be, to go to heaven. Some people say, well, you know what? Kind of. Maybe you might have to be kind of perfect in the sense that you don't have to be 100% righteous, but you have to try really hard. You have to be sincere. You have to give it your best effort. You have to be good, nice, or fair. And what happens is God sees your effort. He takes your effort. And he kind of uses Jesus' work to round up or to, to curve your righteousness in a way so that you kind of come in as perfect even though you aren't really. But you do have to try. You have to actually try to be perfect. You have to be sincere. Almost no one answers this question with yes, absolutely. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. And we all know why though, right? Because then they're immediately disqualified. Right? Very few people would admit to be perfect. I don't know anybody who would admit to be perfect. Nobody wants to even admit that they're a bad person. So when they say, yes, you have to be perfect to go to heaven, they're not going to heaven, Right? They're not going to heaven, but according to God's word, the answer to this question has to be yes. Absolutely, you have to be perfect to be in the presence of a holy God. I just think about the way that God relates to his people throughout all of scripture. Does he tell his people, you know what? Come close, draw near. You're not perfect, but you're forgiven. God never says that, does he? Does God ever say, Moses, you know what? You're really sincere. You're a really honest guy. You, you tried your best, so you know what? Don't worry about your sandals. You're on holy ground, but just come close. That's the way I like it. No. The message over and over and over in Scripture is stay back. Sinners do not belong in the presence of a holy God. You can't draw near. Don't come near or you will surely die. This truth is foundational to the gospel. It's the bad news. God demands perfection to commune with him we don't have it that ship has sailed a long time ago right there's no way we can attain it no way we can make up for it we are imperfect sinful broken and we have no communion with god because of it but the good news is that this perfection doesn't have to come from us the good news is that even though god requires perfection he also provides perfection in jesus that's how God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. These are massive truths. But if you think about them and meditate on them, more questions arise, don't they? The main question is, how in the world is that possible? How can God take sinful people and make them fit for His presence? How can God bring sinful people into heaven with him for all of eternity what exactly did jesus have to do to make sinners holy these are the kind of questions we've been meditating on throughout the book of hebrews right as we contemplate the work of christ our great high priest if you remember this book was written to tired weary persecuted christians they walked away from the jewish faith to follow jesus but as time increased and persecution increased they started to wonder if following Jesus was really worth it. If it was really going to 
be all that it cracked up to be. They were wondering if Jesus was enough to sustain them in their suffering and also if Jesus was enough to truly make them right with God. And they considered throwing in the towel and returning to those outmoded ways of approaching God through the Old Covenant. The temple and the tabernacle and the priests and and the blood sacrifices. Because in their mind, they worked. They worked for centuries, for generations. So why not now? Jesus seems to be offering something else and it seems to be harder. Let's go back to what worked. It's a temptation we all struggle with. But the writer of the book of Hebrews has been relentless just systematically dismantling all these old covenant practices while exalting Jesus as being better than all of it. Right? We've seen Jesus as superior to angels and to Moses and to Joshua. Jesus is our great high priest, our sympathetic high priest. He's a superior prophet. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's the final sacrificial lamb. And not only do all these Old Testament images and pictures point to him, They are fulfilled in Him in such a way that all those Old Testament practices are now obsolete. Jesus is our great high priest. And that's what we've been wrestling with and thinking about for for chapters now, for months. We're in the middle of this section that really could extend all the way from 5 to chapter 10 about the great priestly ministry of Jesus. And what's sad to me is that the idea of a priest is really lost in our culture. Because if you mention priests to somebody today, what do they normally think of? They normally think of Roman Catholic priests, right? They think of the caller, they think of confession or the cathedrals. And the book of Hebrews has been showing us that the biblical idea of priest is something far different. When we think of priests, we shouldn't think of a caller. We should think of a man splattered in blood. A man who stands before God to represent the people of God by making sacrifices, blood sacrifices of atonement, to make make intersection, to purify them before a holy God. I mean, look at verse 22. This is the verse right before our passage, the one we kind of ended up with last week. Listen to how this verse summarizes all these old covenant practices. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Right? Covenants are cut with blood. The temple is dedicated with blood. It's blood sprinkled here, blood sprinkled there, everywhere, right? Why? Look what it says. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the primary teaching of all these Old Testament rituals, isn't it? That forgiveness only comes by the way of blood sacrifices. That's what we've been meditating on for weeks now. And as we wrap up chapter 9, we're turning our attention to the ultimate, the better sacrifice of Jesus' spilled blood and broken body for us. The only sacrifice that makes a true atonement for sins. So as we wrestle with this part of Hebrews 9, I want to answer one specific question. The question is this. What has Christ done to make us perfect? What has Jesus done to make us holy, to make us fit for heaven? I believe this passage gives us three answers to that. And they're all centered around this one word, appears. That's used three times in this passage. First in 24, it says, he now appears. Then 26 says, he has appeared, past tense. And then 28 says, he will appear. This is a way of summing up all that Jesus has done to make us perfect. 
So he now appears as talking about his ascension, his appearing before God the Father in heaven. That's where we'll spend most of our time. He has appeared as his incarnation. And of course, he will appear, future tense, is his second coming. That's where we'll spend our time today. So let's dive in with the ascension. He now appears, starting in verse 23. Verse 23 says this. Thus, it was necessary for the copy of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So what's he talking about? What are the copies of heavenly things? What are the rites talked about here? Well, notice it starts with thus, right? Like therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? You look back. You look back to the verses right before it. So look up to verse 20. After Moses cuts the covenant in the blood, he says this. Verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the tabernacle, and all the vessels used in worship. Those are the copies of the heavenly things, the earthly tabernacle and all the, the things involved in it. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified by blood. That's the shedding of blood. That's the religious rites he's talking about. Blood sacrifices. So let's read 23 one more time with those things in mind. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the earthly tabernacle and all that's involved in that worship, to be purified with these rites, blood sacrifices. But, here's the contrast, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I hope you can see he's doing this kind of compare and contrast saying, saying there's these copies of heavenly things, the Jewish temple, tabernacle, and all that's involved, and these heavenly things. And he's comparing them, saying, look, they both need to be purified. They both need to have sacrifices. But the difference is the heavenly things need a better sacrifice, a greater sacrifice than the bloods of bulls and goats and all the rites in the Old Covenant. Now, I hope you're thinking about this clearly, because if you are, we have a big problem. We have heavenly objects that need purifying. Why on earth would anything in heaven need to be purified? Is there sin in heaven? Are there parts of heaven that are unclean? Would God even allow that? I mean, He doesn't allow sinners in His presence. Why would He allow sin into heaven? So what in the world are these heavenly things that need cleansing? Well, some scholars believe that what's, what's being said here is more like metaphorical language. It's not really cleansing that's talking about. It's more dedication. It's more inauguration. Because the blood would inaugurate the temple, right? They would sprinkle the blood. They would dedicate the temple with the blood. Covenants were cut in blood, kind of like a dedication. And so scholars will say, well, really, this is God's way of saying heaven itself has to be inaugurated, dedicated for Christ to enter and for the sinful people like us to follow him. Which I get what they're trying to say here, but there's some big problems with this. Namely, the first thing is that the word here for that they want to use for inaugurate is not inaugurate. It's not dedicate. It's cleanse. The word for inaugurate was used in verse 18, right? Verse 18 says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. But the word in this verse is really cleanse. It's purify. Plus that makes sense in the context because we've been talking about the blood of Jesus needing to purify what? Us. We're the ones that need to be purified. We're the ones that need to be cleansed. So I think the better way to understand this is this is 
the writer's use of spiritual language to describe the church. The heavenly things here are the people of God. We are the ones who need our consciences cleansed from dead works. We are the ones who have to be made fit for heaven, who have to be made holy to be in God's presence. And we don't just need to be made holy to go into heaven. We need to be holy so that God can go into us, so that we can be a dwelling place of God. And that's what the Bible calls us, doesn't it? Ephesians 2, the saints are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. We are the tabernacle. We are the the resting place of God in Christ. We are the heavenly things in this passage that need to be cleansed, but we need to be cleansed by a better sacrifice than bulls and goats. We need the blood of Jesus. And what makes his blood better than those old covenant sacrifices? Look at verse 24. 24 says, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, that's the tabernacle, but into heaven itself, now to appear, that's the first appearance there. Where? In the presence of God. This is talking about the part of Jesus' ministry called the ascension, that Jesus, after raising from the dead, ascends to heaven, the very presence of God to appear before him. We've already talked about this a little bit in Hebrews. Chapter 4, it says, Our great high priest has passed through the heavens. Chapter 8 says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Even verse 1, it was introduced. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But here's the weird part. Whenever the ascension is talked about in Hebrews generally, it's talked about kind of an afterthought of atonement. Kind of the, the final piece of atonement in the sense that after it's all done, Jesus sits down because of his work atonement is over. But in this passage, the ascension is mentioned in connection with purifying the church. Fact 23 says, thus it was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to ascend to heaven to purify the church. I don't know if that sounds weird to anybody else. I hope it does. Does that mean his work on earth, his incarnation was incomplete? That his sacrifice wasn't good enough on earth? Is that what he's trying to say? Well, no. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly in heaven now, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's saying, no, he didn't go to heaven to offer more sacrifices like the high priests of old. If that were the case, he would have had to be in heaven the whole time. As long as sin was in this world from pretty much right after creation, he would be sacrificing himself over and over and over and over again just like the high priests on earth, if that were the case. That's not why he went to heaven, right? Look at 26. But as it is, he has appeared. This is past tense now. Once for all. This becomes one of the author's favorite words in the next few chapters. Jesus has appeared once for all. When? 
at the end of the ages, in these last days. As Hebrews has taught us at the culmination of time, as God's been predicting this for years, for centuries, Jesus has come as the fulfillment of all those ages past. To do what? To put away sin. I love this description. The word there is literally a null sin. To act like legally it never existed. Jesus came to kill sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. That's the better sacrifice. That's the once for all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. He didn't have to go to heaven to offer himself again. His life, death, and resurrection was a one-time thing. It accomplished atonement completely. So again, why does he have to ascend to heaven to finish this atonement? It doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe let's think about it this way. Why did the earthly high priest ever go into the Holy of Holies? I mean, sure, it was commanded by God, but why? I mean, couldn't they just take the sacrifice, sacrifice it in front of the people, shed the blood outside of the Holy of Holies? God's everywhere present with this whole being, right? God would see the sacrifice. The people would see what their sin cost. But then the, the high priest wouldn't have to risk his life to go into the Holy of Holies. Why doesn't that work? Why did he have to take it in right in front of the face of God? Well, because the high priest was doing this on behalf of the people to represent the people for what end so that the people of God would once again commune with him atonement was made for the goal of drawing near to God so that we could draw near to God as his people and him as our God that's the whole goal of the sacrificial system is true communion with God but it never really got there did it they got a taste of it for a short time through a mediator but they didn't really get lasting atonement through their high priest did they but Jesus is an incredibly better high priest because Jesus just didn't go into the copies he went into the actual holy of holies I mean, it should have known the whole time that this was a, a copy of the Holy of Holies, right? This little 15 by 15 cubic room was just in a tent, a temple later on, but it was, it was minuscule. It doesn't even compare to the Holy of Holies. It clearly is a copy, right? Like, like my son loves to play with these little bitty cars, right? He's obsessed with these things. And it would be ridiculous for me to say, look, I own a Jeep, right? I own a Jeep. This is my Jeep. It looks like a Jeep. It's just smaller. It's painted like a Jeep. It rolls like a Jeep. It would be ridiculous for me to think that. I could even scratch off the paint, and it's just a hunk of metal. Or more like a hunk of plastic now, right? That's the same thing in the Holy of Holies. They should have known that it was a copy. Moses set it up like that, and even the Ark of the Covenant was just wood. That's all it was. Overlaid with gold to look more glorious than it actually was. But it was only a copy. And even then, these high priests, these earthly high priests, still were scared to death to go in. They had to burn incense to create a cloud of smoke, this protective layer, so they don't look God in the face. So they don't gaze upon His glory, otherwise they might die. But Jesus, our great high priest, comes to the very presence of God. The word there used is like the face of God. 
he draws right up to God's face in the sense of close communion. Without the protective layer of incense and smoke, Jesus goes right into the real holy of holies. To do what? To offer the blood of bulls and goats? To offer blood that could never cleanse our guilty conscience, that could never truly fix our sin problem? To offer these sacrifices year after year after year? No. Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies once and for all with the sacrifice of Himself, His broken and bruised body, which continues to have the scars, the evidence of the atonement that was made to show that atonement is done. It's finished. He really meant that on the cross. He went in with the better sacrifice to the face of God. Why? What was the purpose of all of that? So that His people can draw near so that God can enjoy communion with His people once again. I hope you noticed I skipped part of verse 24. I was on purpose. I skipped the best part because I wanted to come back to it. Look at verse 24 again with me. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear. That's the ascension. In the presence of God, Why? On our behalf. Those are some of the most precious words in all of Scripture, aren't they? Jesus did this for us. I've heard Martin Luther said, you can summarize the gospel in two words, for me. That's what this passage is saying, that the incarnation, the ascension, all this work of the great high priest was done for his church to represent us, to purify us, to bring representation that the old covenant priest could never do. That's one of the saddest things to me in the Old Testament, how poorly we get to commune with God through the old covenant priest. But you know, the only communion the old, the average um, Israelite got to enjoy with God was symbolically, as a rock, as a precious stone on the breastplate of the high priest. They had 12 stones in their breastplate representing the people of God that they would wear into the Holy of Holies. And the holy priests only went in there once a year for a matter of of minutes, maybe hours at most. So the average Israelite got to commune with God once a year for a matter of minutes as a rock. That's as good as it got back then. But in Jesus Christ, we're not just the rock on His chest. He truly represents us in His broken, human body. His nail-pierced hands. His blood that was shed. And He was fully human. He was made like us. He became a man to sympathize with us. To be tempted in every way that we are yet without sin to be our perfect representative so that when he walks into the holy of holies it's really like we're walking in with him to really represent us and the amazing thing is where is jesus right now right now at this very second he's still there he's still in the presence of god still in heaven for us our incarnate 
glorious, resurrected great high priest is in the presence of God right now as a memorial of his salvation that he's won, as a seal and a guarantee of our salvation, as the forerunner of our faith, the first fruits of our salvation. Jesus, in a sense, is in heaven holding a spot for us, like holding a spot in line. He goes and prepares a place for us. And as long as he remains in the presence of God, his people, his church, those who have been bought and paid for with his blood are truly purified, are truly cleansed. We belong in the presence of God Almighty because Jesus is there. Our salvation is safe and secure, as safe and secure as Jesus himself in the presence of God. As that great hymn says, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Oh, the ascension is is massive for believers. It is food for the hungry soul. I don't think we we realize that. I don't think we meditate on the ascension enough. Do you ever struggle with doubt? With guilt? Wondering how God can forgive a sinner like you? Wondering if you sinned one time too many. If you somehow found a way to outsin God's grace. Or do you ever think, you know what? I can't be forgiven unless I do something. Unless I read my Bible or pray more. Or I start to feel really bad about my sin. I have to contribute somehow to this, right? To earn forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, our standing before God is not based on how sorry we feel, how much we've done to change, or how many times we've sinned or asked for forgiveness. Our standing before a holy God is grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, which is anchored in heaven with Jesus right now, before the very face of God, showing that atonement has truly been accomplished. That's where our salvation rests. That's where our righteousness rests. That's our hope, our peace. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it in any way. It can't be taken from us. The amazing thing is that it will be a human, nail-pierced hand that opens the door for heaven one day for us. His incarnation continues because He represents us. And we will be brought to Him one day. This is the glorious truth of our great high priest. Well, we kind of took both first two points together there. Christ now appears, the ascension. Christ has appeared as incarnation led to the ascension. But what about Christ will appear? What about the second coming? Maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? I'm so thankful Christ is in heaven. He went into the true holy of holies for me. That's encouraging, but you know what? That feels like a long way off. He feels very distant from me right now. I know he delivered me from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, but what's really wearing on me right now is the presence of sin. The brokenness of my soul, my heart, my life, and all the world around me is just so much I can barely take it. When do I get delivered from the presence of sin? 
That's the last aspect of his high priestly work, his second coming. Verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Let's stop there for a second. This verse is massive, profound. We could do a whole sermon on this verse, on living in light of eternity, on numbering our days, but we have to remember this verse is just an illustration. Just giving us a picture to describe the last aspect of the high priestly work of Jesus. So what is it picturing? What is it teaching? Well, it says God has appointed, God has set this world up where every single man, every single person that he's created will face death and then judgment. Death and then judgment. That's the order that it works. And that's the way it is no matter what for every single man. No matter how much you wash your hands or how careful you are wearing a mask or how many supplements you take or how much you diet and exercise, we can't add one second to our life. It's all set by God. The day of our death is set by God. There's no escaping it. And then comes judgment. And so what is he trying to teach through this? Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. That's his death, isn't it? His incarnation, his life and death to bear the sins of many. That's what he's talking about. He will appear a second time. Now this is future tense. A future appearing. Not past tense incarnation. Not present tense ascension. This is future, second coming. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Atonement's complete. So why is He coming back? But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, if you're trying to follow the argument here, you might be a little confused because something seems a little off. The illustration basically said the order for every mankind is supposed to be death and then judgment. And then it says, well, Jesus died, sacrifice of atonement, right? So what should be next? Judgment. That's not what it says. The end of verse 28 says he died for atonement, but then he's coming back to do what? To save his people from his sin. So what's he talking about? Well, Jesus does come back to save his people from the sin in the world. But how does he do that? By judging sin once for all. Jesus is coming back. He's returning to accomplish salvation through judgment. To free his people once and for all from the presence of sin. To judge all those who are not found in Christ. Whose wrath of God lays upon them. He's coming back to judge them. Removing sin from this world for good so that God's people can be drawn into God's presence forever. God's people can be brought into the Holy of Holies. We eagerly wait for that day, don't we? And you might say, well, that that sounds a little weird. That doesn't sound like a high priest. right? They give sacrifices. They spill blood. They do intercession. They go into the Holy of Holies. What's the second coming all about? That seems different than the high priestly ministry in the Old Testament. Now, we only say that because we're not Jewish. Right? We, we don't have these images grained into us from, from our youth. So let's look back at the Day of Atonement. Look to Leviticus 16 with me. Leviticus 16 will help us get a picture, a, a brief picture of what it was like on this day. And I want you to pay attention as we read what's going on in Leviticus. 
describing the Day of Atonement, look at the appearances of the high priests. Look at the order of all that God asked them to do. Leviticus 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. There's that central teaching, isn't it? Sinners do not belong in the presence of a holy God. If they are in the presence of God, they will surely die, just like Aaron's son. But then look at verse 3. But in this way, Aaron, the great high priest, shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. God's saying, Moses, Aaron, Israel, pay attention. I'm about to teach you what it's going to take to commune with me. This is what it's going to take for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. It takes blood sacrifices. And verses 6 through 14 talk about how to prepare those sacrifices and, and how Aaron was supposed to prepare himself to enter into the Holy of Holies. And in verse 15, we get him entering in. Verse 15 says, Then he, that's Aaron, shall kill the goat of sin offering that is for the people. And he would do this in front of the people outside of the Holy of Holies. And then bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, the sacrifice that Aaron already made for himself, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Did you notice the order there? The great high priest is supposed to make a, a sacrifice in front of the people outside of the holy of holies, a sacrifice of atonement. And then bring the blood, bring the evidence of the sacrifice into the very presence of God. The first appearance is for atonement. The second appearance is before the face of God. Does this sound familiar at all? I hope it does. Because the, the last appearance is next. After the, the high priestly work inside the Holy of Holies was done, you know what the high priest did next? He would come out from the Holy of Holies, completing the work of atonement. And then the party would begin. The people would celebrate. Because it meant that atonement was taken by God. It was accepted by God. That they were free. They could commune with God. They could be His people. They would celebrate and rejoice in the emergence of their great high priest. We actually have record. It doesn't say here. But we have record from a couple hundred years before Jesus with this rabbi, Ben Sarah, of what he thought of the great high priest returning from the Holy of Holies. The people essentially would wait breathlessly as their high priest was inside, holding their breath, not knowing if their high priest would die, if the, the sacrifice would be accepted, not knowing what would happen. And then when the high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies, this is what they would think. This rabbi says, How glorious he was when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary. Like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like a rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds. When the high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies, it was time to rejoice. 
It's time to celebrate. But there's one more thing the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, after all that work is done inside the Holy of Holies, he shall present the live goat. This is a different goat now, not the one that's been sacrificed. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go from in the wilderness. This is the scapegoat, isn't it? What's the final act of the high priest on the Day of Atonement? It's to emerge from the Holy of Holies after already made atonement for sin and then symbolically lay his hands on this goat, which is going to remove the sin from God's people forever. That's what the Israelites watched as the goat emerged from them and went off into the wilderness. They saw their sins disappear. Think of our great high priest who came to this world incarnate, became man to do what? To offer his own flesh, his own life, his perfect life in our place as a sacrifice of atonement, just like the priest would slaughter an animal in the presence of the people. And then our great high priest, Jesus, went to the very holy of holies itself before the face of God to show his better sacrifice. And he remains there in the holy of holies, just like the priest would go into the holy of holies to present the work of atonement before God himself. And one day, one day, our great high priest will emerge from behind the veil, from the true holy of holies. And what will he come to do? To judge. To get rid of sin for good. To send sin further than a scapegoat could ever take it. Jesus will return to those that are eagerly waiting for him to finish his high priestly work. But don't we have an amazing high priest? Let's thank our Father for the work of our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, you are incredibly kind to your people. Just in giving us your word and describing to us what your son has truly done for us. Lord, we don't even grasp much of all the work that he's done, Lord, but we rejoice in the little we know. Pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand the work of your great high priest, the one who has fulfilled all the old covenant promises, the one who has given us everything that we needed to commune with you. We thank you for our true representative, our true sacrifice of atonement, the one who truly represents us, because in him we know we are saved, we are perfect, and we rejoice and praise you for that. Give us boldness to preach that gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.